standing, but turn please to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, I'd like to read verses 31 through 37, which is the text that uh, we got to. Uh, I'd like to pray before I read that. Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 31. And he went down, oh, sorry. Lord, I pray and ask that you tend to us in, in the reading of your word, in the preparations I put into uh, the sermon here, that uh, we'd be benefited by your spirit and your word together. Amen. And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath, and they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. You may be seated. Uh, One of the things we talked about at the council meeting, too, was uh, people don't typically even believe in demons anymore. Some people educated um, outside of the church especially, they, uh, they think it's foolishness to believe in such things. Those same people typically don't tend to believe in God uh, and for the same reasons. They're very, what you can touch and, and smell and taste is all that exists kind of people, so... Hopefully, no one here is one of, one of them, um, but so be it. In the last sermon, we saw uh, the people of Jesus' hometown, Nazareth, go from loving his synagogue sermon to hating it. He began preaching wonderful things. He was winsome. He was making his kin proud. But then he goes and pokes the bear with a firm stick and they get offended and enraged and even tried to kill him. We're told he passed through their midst. And so today, starting in verse 31, we learn that he's come to Capernaum, a city, another city of Galilee, which was the region even of his hometown, Nazareth. And he's teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority, it says. His word possessed authority. It appears, okay, as far as Capernaum goes, that uh, other scripture texts would lead you to believe that he's been here before. Particularly Mark chapter 1, that he was been in Capernaum prior to now coming back to it after kind of getting... Hurried out of Nazareth. In fact, in his adulthood, he made it, Capernaum, his new 
residence, the central hub of his activity. His public ministry began, okay, if you remember, after returning from John's baptism and Satan's wilderness temptations. He he goes and he chooses four disciples, all fishermen, Simon, Andrew, James, and John, and they joined him. They, They hung together. And it's all five of them that are now in Capernaum if you read Mark chapter 1, 16 through 21. I'm not going to read that. Jesus was teaching, I want you to see, in the synagogue. He didn't skip worshiping and teaching on the Sabbath day. He didn't skip it. He perpetually applied himself to it. And when I say that, I include even now, the last 2,000 plus years, he's been teaching in his church, okay, On the Lord's Day, the Christian Sabbath, a day of rest and worship, a day of fellowship and instruction. He's still doing it. In any case, the people were astonished by what they were hearing. It says, at the authority of his teaching. What does that mean? Well, for one thing, Jesus, he said it as it was. He was not guessing at Scripture's meaning. He was not quoting the interpretations of this rabbi and the commentaries of that rabbi and that school of thought. His manner was was different from the scribes. It's like he knew, he knew what he said was true. Mark's gospel comes out with that comparison of the scribes comparing Jesus to them and their style of teaching. And it says there, And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Cambridge Bible Commentary explains those scribes. It says in the New Testament there are, are sometime, they are sometimes called lawyers or doctors of the law, intelligent people people that you would much rather listen to and trust because of their intellect and their education. Their teaching was, the Cambridge back again, their teaching was preeminently second-hand, though. They simply repeated the decisions of previous rabbis. Whereas Jesus, our Lord's teaching, was absolute and independent. His formula was, was not like theirs, which was, it hath been said... It hath been said, that's how the scribes went about it. His formula was, I say unto you. I say unto you. So the scribes, they would hem and haw. This is going somewhere. Especially for people who like to think. Which I think we got a lot of people who like to think. The scribes would hem and haw. They would discuss and and deliberate and contemplate. They'd approach the Word of God as if there was a great challenge, a great mystery here, hard to understand. You can't really know for sure, and to a degree, we should come to God's Word humbly, right? Circumspect, not trusting ourselves so much. However, if you keep that attitude, if you go 
straying into those woods and think you can never really know God's word for sure. You, you just got to keep trying. Who knows? You'll never come out into the clearing. I don't think God permits us to remain uncertain at every turn. If you think that you can never know what God said for sure, you've inadvertently decided and determined that God is incapable. God is incapable of bringing you out of the woods. God is incapable of speaking his truth into your life. And that would make us guilty if we had that attitude. It would make us guilty of being like the people Paul warned Timothy about. Always learning, but never being able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. The claim that people can only be ignorant ultimately is actually a way, it's a way for a person to excuse himself, right? from teaching and obeying anything at all. Now you've got the free life because you can't really know for sure. So I might as well just do what I want. Think what I want. If you've gotten to that point, you should ask yourself if you are even right about humility. You're probably wrong about that too. Or if God's word can even exist in a fallen world. Okay, so you can't be like that. Never coming to the knowledge of the truth. Always learning, never coming to the knowledge of the truth. But be careful, because there's that other side of the coin, all right? The other end of the spectrum with teaching authoritatively. For it is equally damning to fake confidence in the Bible when you don't have it. What I mean is don't fake it until you make it. That's absurd. Don't be a poser. That's reckless. It's foolhardy. And it's too easy for Christians to look the part, to believe on the surface and to teach something that they heard from a podcast and be all strong about it or read online or were taught by a a radio or streamed sermon and then they sound off on three topics, three topics. It's always the same three topics. They're really convinced about those things. Like they've got all of God's things covered. Remember how Jesus' brother James, he warned the church, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness, James 3.1. And listen, the church needs teachers. It needs teachers. Just be willing to put in the work. Little by little, line upon line. Podcast won't suffice. Even your favorite one. You will be better for God and his kingdom if your faith is built on a firm scriptural understanding, a broad one. Even if it takes more time because you've got you to grow that base. 
It would be better for God's kingdom than if you build a, a faith on a quick acceptance of someone else's teaching or someone else's faith. Yet I assure you, if you don't read and study and begin to think for yourself what God says in his word, then you will become that little boat, that little boat driven by the wind, rocked by the waves. Preachers and teachers and authors and podcasters, bloggers, if they even call it that anymore. All, all of those and the like can, can, can sound convincing at times. Preachers too. And you might sit listening to them and find yourself comforted, good, or riled up, or becoming more astute. Whatever. Just make sure what they are saying is real and substantive. I adjure you. Proceed ahead in your learning. Do it with prayerful intentionality and cautious study. You work with God and with his word. Jesus grew up that way. With God and with his word. So when his turn to teach came, he knew what he knew. He was not going to hem and haw or Fake it. If there was something he did not know to be true, oh, careful. If there was something he did not know to be true, he would not have been so presumptuous as to teach it. Yeah, he grew in knowledge. Jesus was so right about what he taught that his life and his actions it flowed from the truth of it. He lived according to his faith daily. And he lived, as we all should, in his Father's reality. It's God's reality, not something we get to decide. Jesus was in tune with that. If we would be so consistent. So here he is, he's teaching in the synagogue authoritatively, and what happens? Someone is beginning to squirm. Look at verse 33 and 34. It says, And in the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. It was an unsettling interjection. I had someone once get up in the middle of the service, long-term member, and walk out of the church because he was so miffed at me. I thought that was tough. I don't need any demon-filled people. Ha! The Greek word, eh-ah. Eh-ah. It's used to express Interject surprise or indignation, fear. Ha! Who said it? Where did it come from? It came from a man in the congregation. But the man wasn't alone. He had something in him. 
And it was that something, verse 3 describes as the spirit of an unclean demon. It was that thing, that, that thing, which compelled the man to speak. Ha! What have you to do with us? Have you come to destroy us? So it's fear, which caused the bubbling up of this interjection. Ha! The thing is afraid. He's afraid he's going to be destroyed. The unclean demon is is called simply demon in verse 35. Then it's called unclean spirit in verse 36. Same thing. And I do want to take a moment to say a few things about this um, unclean spiritual creature. First, it's, it is distinct from the man who appears in the synagogue. Okay, the demon is spiritual. We do not get to see it. And that's a bit unsettling. And maybe we prefer to, maybe we prefer that, though, that it's unseeable. I think I would. Nonetheless, humans often, we tend to think of angels and demons in a way that puts them squarely in space and time. We want them to be containable. And though we can argue that they are creatures and therefore we're we're created at some time, that is true. Still, as spiritual, they are created without material bodies. So time is fine, but they're not compartmentalized quite so easily into space. Time, yes. Space, hmm. However, though spiritual, they are not God. So they're not everywhere present, as he is, omnipresent. Which means they are somewhere present. They are in a particular spiritually defined place or position. A thing most troubling to us is that this unclean spirit should be inside this guy. We're in the council room. I don't think we could really discuss the passage that we're looking at here without somebody going into some kind of deep gravelly voice, right, when they talked about the demon. Why is that? TV? We do know that demons should not be in people. And yet here it is. The demon is the one crying out toward Jesus. And though spiritual, the unclean spirit has the ability somehow to compel and control the material. It speaks using the man, verses 33 and 34. Whether it's impressed itself upon the man's mind or is manipulating his vocal cords, does it matter? Do we think the man has to agree to this possession? Do we think he has to agree and act in concert with the demon for this to be the case? I don't think so. I doubt it. He certainly doesn't want it in him at some level. Later, the 
Spirit throws the man down, verse 35, as Jesus dispatches it. Again, the Spirit was affecting matter. Now we know that people were astonished by Jesus' authoritative teaching. But here, here we have a strong one from this other realm who knows, who knows why Jesus taught with such authority. It's because the demon knows Jesus is from eternity. He comes from the Father. They are one. He knows who the Son of God is, and maybe he has an idea of the mission of the Lord, that the mission of the Lord that he's come to perform. Leastwise, okay, this spirit, leastwise, he understands the potential of his own doom because of this Holy One. What did the demon fear Jesus might do to him and to other unclean spirits, perhaps, because he says, what have you to do with us? He includes himself in this plural relationship to other entities and presumably not to himself and the fella he's in. What do you have to do with us? Now, you, have you come to destroy us, he asks, must refer to those expecting God's displeasure. I think we should understand that Satan and his demonic companions are on the descent. On the descent. They were thrown down from heaven, but earth was and is not where they finish. Currently, even, he's beyond earth. He's bound, chained in a pit, though not without some influence over the unrepentant. He's still on course for destruction, as well as the unclean spirits. They remain on course, descending, and their final destination will be the lake of fire. That is destruction. This demon in the man, he was right. He should expect to be destroyed. He's in the process of it. Now we get these pictures from Revelation chapter 12, verses 3 and 4, chapter 7, verse 9, chapter 13. Oh no, 12, 7 through 9, chapter, uh, verse 13, Revelation 20, verse 1 and verse 10. And I'm going to read those quickly. Revelation 12, 3 through 4. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that, she would, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. Revelation 12, 7 through 9. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. So Satan and his angels get pushed out and descend from heaven to earth. We keep reading. Revelation twelve thirteen. And when the dragon saw, I'm not reading in sequence, 
This is from later on in the book. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. Verse 14. When the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness. Verse 17. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Descended to earth, Satan is then desperate to prevent the seed of the woman from conquering him and sin and death. He works to prevent the restoration of creation to its sinless first condition, which he feels is to be brought about by the Holy One of God. Satan's success, however, will not be permitted And God's companions push him down yet again. Listen to Revelation 21. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. Now, some of you won't agree with this at all. This represents the time or era that we are in of the glorious gospel of the Son and the church's successful expansion throughout the world, a bound Satan, is foiled, is a foiled and frustrated devil. And everywhere men receive and believe the good news, the power of that evil one is kept at bay. It's, it's still the case. His efforts are rendered ineffective when it comes to God's word and his Holy Spirit. Satan's binding is further descent. He's not done yet. It's further descent. Yet he and his angels, they're not finally destroyed. Their ultimate descent comes on a terrible future day. A future day when, listen, Revelation 20.10, the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. That's the final end. This is when Jesus has destroyed them, which is what that one demon feared. When all enemies have been put under his feet, the final one being death, and when he throws the unclean into the lake of fire and sulfur. When will this painful destruction end for them? It won't. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever, it says. So then, what Jesus is doing in the Capernaum synagogue is part of the inevitable descent of the dragon and his angels. Yes, there is fear in that unclean spirit when he interjects ah. Have you come to destroy us? He's right to recognize Jesus is the male child of of that woman, clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and the crown of 12 stars, and here he sits. He sits in the synagogue teaching God's people. And the dragon? The dragon hasn't devoured the male child, has he? 
Though the desert was an attempt to get him to sin. And at the cross, Satan will think for a moment he succeeded. Here's an interesting thing. Later on in Luke, okay, Jesus sends out 72 disciples to preach the gospel, his gospel, and heal and cast out devils and call people to repentance. They have great success. They come back. They reap the great harvest. And when they're finished, we read this. The 72 returned with joy. This is Luke 10. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Great theologian John Gill maintains that Jesus was referring to ancient history here. Not to what was going on only with the 72 that he saw, you know, Satan fall like lightning to heaven. He's he's referring to ancient history. He existed, Jesus, this is Gill's words, he existed as the eternal son of God before his incarnation. That means before he took on flesh. He was present and saw him and his angels fall from heaven, from their first estate, their habitation of bliss and glory, down to hell upon their sin and rebellion as violently, swiftly, and suddenly as the lightning falls from heaven to earth. And when he sent out these disciples, Gills goes on, and when he sent out these disciples, as soon as they began their work and all along in it, he, by his divine omniscience, saw the powers of darkness falling before their ministry and miracles. And he also foresaw how Satan hereafter, in a more conspicuous manner, would fall before the preaching of his gospel by his apostles, not only in Judea, but especially among the Gentiles, where he, the prince of this world, would be cast down from his throne and out of his kingdom. John Gill. He's amazing. Here's a question. Is it possible to expel a demon from a possessed person apart from Jesus Christ? No. Only Jesus can release captives. Find me someone who can expel demons without Jesus, and I'll show you someone that is being manipulated by bad angels like the sons of Sceva were in Acts 19. You can look at that on your own later. Verse 35 of this text, Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. Jesus rebuked him, be silent, come out of him. 
Where did, the, where did the demon go? I don't know. We'd like to think he went far from the congregation, right? It's because we're timid. We want Hollywood to show the window blinds fluttering as evil escapes or shoots out. Or the door slams behind it as it is expelled. Leaves away, far, far away. Like that instance where uh, Jesus sends the many demons from the man, the demons called Legion, into that herd of swine. I think that's the one. And they run down that steep, steep cliff into the water and they drown. We like that. It makes it feel a tad safer now. It seems complete. Good riddance. They've been put away from us. And that's good. That's real good. However, only the pigs died. Not the demons. Spiritual creatures don't die. You cannot exterminate them like flies or mice. They just go somewhere else. So I suggest, congregants, you find yourself on the right side of all that is spiritual. Be on God's side. Be surrounded or attended by clean spirits, good angels, the guardians, and other saints too. Fill your mind with his word and pray and keep from sin. That's your best hope. And understand this as well. Jesus brought something more into this conflict when he took on human flesh and walked among us. He, he triumphed over sin, the flesh, the devil, when he was crucified and rose again. And now, now he puts all enemies under his feet. He's been doing it since the ascension. So the demon recognizes both the authority of Jesus' teaching and the authority of Jesus the man. The Lord rebukes it. He tells it to keep its mouth shut and to come out of the man. He has no choice. Jesus lives and speaks, as I said, what he knows. He is the Holy One of God. He gets to command unclean spirits. And the spirit exits from his human and throws the man down unhurt, thud. The church's congregation, they stand with their, their mouth agape. What happens dawns on them. They, they shake their heads and just say, wow. And the reports about Jesus, verse 37, they go out into every place in the surrounding region. Let us pray. Lord, I ask that uh, you'd use that um, preparation and presentation of your word for your glory. Change us as your people to become more attentive to the Father's reality, to walk in truth. Amen.